Good morning, good morning. Okay, come on. So good to see you. So good to be with you. I thoroughly enjoyed the last time that I did preach uh, for you that Advent a couple years ago. And uh, man, you know, we are not, we always say this about New Life, like we are not, uh, like we are not in this space where we're like, you know, Colorado Springs would be better if every church was a New Life church. You know, we got to find a way to like, you know, it's not that. But what we are always looking for is like, where is the spirit at work in a congregation in a way that's similar to the way the spirit is at work among us? And I just remember reporting back to Pastor Brady and Glenn and Daniel and the team saying, you guys, like the, what the Lord is doing at Antioch Church is like not just kind of consistent with what the Lord is doing among us, but it's like really completely consistent with what the Lord is doing. And I was so like just refreshed by being among you, preaching for you, the energy in this place, the hospitality of this house, it's just beautiful. So I guess I'm just saying all of that to say two things. Well, number one, like we love you and we are so glad that Antioch Church has joined the New Life community and become New Life Midtown. You are enriching our community's life in so many ways, not least of which is by sharing with us Jade and Christy Duncan. Guys, I've been in full-time ministry for 15 years, been in the church all of my life, and I'm saying to you on good authority that Jade and Christy Duncan are top shelf leaders, and you are blessed to have them. So be praying for them as they are away on sabbatical. As you know, they've been in ministry full-time, I think, for 20 years now, and this is their first extended time away. And a sabbatical can change your life in terms of what the Lord does for you, refreshing, renewing you, giving you fresh vision. So just pray uh, for that over them. I am grateful to be with you this morning. Like, uh, like Pastor Jonathan said, my name is Andrew, Pastor New Life East. Uh, my wife, Mandy, of 21 years is sitting on the front row. Can you give it up for Mandy for just a real example of Christian endurance uh, with, with this one? up here, 21 years. We're off to a good start. We have four uh, We have four beautiful kids, Ethan, Gabe, Bella, and Liam. Ethan and Gabe are high schoolers. Bella's a middle schooler, and our youngest, Liam, is in elementary school. And uh, so I'm glad to be here. I'm in the book of Galatians chapter 4. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn there. I'm going to start in verse 21. As you know, what Paul has been addressing here in the book of Galatians is a situation in the Galatian church where there are some people who have come along and who have basically said to the Galatians, look, it's awesome that you're following Jesus. It's awesome that you believe that he has died and raised and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. All of that is great. It's great that you've experienced the pouring out of the Spirit. All of that is wonderful. But you also need to do all of these other things to really shore up your case for being in the family of God. And of course, in every age of the church, there always is this group of people, and they're always presenting to you different things, you know, that will shore up your in-the-family-of-God status. As it turns out, here in Galatians, uh, it's Jewish Christians, it seems like, who are coming along and they're saying, in addition to faith in Christ, you need to do all of these other things. So uh, obeying the Sabbath laws, the laws of Moses, circumcision, all the dietary stuff, you need to make sure that you do this stuff to put yourself in the family of God. And what Paul has been doing throughout Galatians is he's been knocking down that argument, the argument of his opponents, one stage at a time. This really, in this text here, this is like the last stage of his argument 
before he moves into full-out, just sort of pastoral exhortation mode. And I actually think this might be the linchpin. This is like the clinching argument. It's kind of a complicated bit of text, and so we'll wrestle with it a little bit this morning. But I, have, I really do have a simple message for you and an invitation for you. So it'll be Galatians 4 and verse 21. And before we get to the text of Scripture, let's just pause our hearts and pray. Jesus, come. This morning to you we say, hallowed be your name in all of the earth. And we say, glorify your name. Glorify your name. May your name be blessed. May your name be lifted high. May you be exalted in this house, oh God. The church of Jesus Christ, we believe, is that space over which Christ Jesus has claimed his lordship, his renewing rule. And it's from that place that you're extending your rule to the whole cosmos. And so this morning, we pray that you would establish your rule among us, that you would make your reign tangible and visible among us. As we prayed just a moment ago, praying the words of the Lord Jesus, we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done here on earth in this place as it is in heaven. Feed us today by the scriptures. Forgive us and make us a forgiving people. And keep us free from temptation. Deliver us from the evil one and safely into your heavenly kingdom, we pray. Come and speak to us this morning, we pray. May the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Galatians 4 and verse 21, Paul writes, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, And the other by the free woman. And his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things, Paul writes, are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery there with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy, and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you, brothers and sisters like Isaac, are children of the promise. And at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son, born by the power of the Spirit, and it's the same way now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. Sometimes I read the Bible, and I go, this is the word of the Lord, and what I want to respond is, uh, well, what the heck is that? And I feel that way a little bit about this text. You know, there are times that as a preacher, you come to the text of Scripture, and it's just so neat and easy and clean and wonderful, and you go, I know exactly what I'm going to preach. And there are other times that you go, do we have to, Lord? Can we just skate right by this? But I actually think there's something really powerful in this text of Scripture. Paul, remember, is addressing those who are wanting to be justified in some way by the law of Moses. And so he goes, now, are you not aware of what the law actually teaches, what it says. And so he takes them back here, this like clinching moment of the argument. He takes them all the way back to the very foundations of their faith, their Jewish faith, and shows them how their foundations actually point forward to a reality that's much greater than anything that they had ever imagined. And to do that, he anchors it in the story 
of Abraham, talking about Abraham's two wives, Hagar and Sarah. Now, do you remember the story of Abraham? I'm sure you do if you've been in the church for any length of time. You know it, Genesis chapter 12. Uh, the world is in complete chaos. Sin is wrecking everything. The fall is spreading. And, and what the Lord does in Genesis chapter 12 is he calls a man by the name of Abram. And he says, Abram, hey, uh, leave your land, your father's household, your people, all that you've ever known, and I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And then the Lord says this, I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you and all the nations, can you finish it? All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So what the Lord does is he puts his blessing upon Abraham and Abraham's family. And he says to him, uh, your family is actually going to be the carriers of this life-renewing blessing of God that is going to overrule and overrun the curse. So all of the places where the world has been broken by sin, your family is going to be the carrier of a blessing that actually puts those things right again. But it's through your family. And there's a trick here with Abraham that when he is first called, do you know how old he is? He's 75 years old. Now, it's not entirely outside of the realm of possibility that a man like that will have a baby, but it kind of is. He's sort of pushing the boundary there. But what makes the task even more forbidding is that there's an issue with his wife, Sarah, isn't there? Do you remember? What's wrong with her? She's barren. She can't have kids. So between his old age and her barrenness, the odds are not very good that a family is going to be built up between the two of them. And you can feel, as the narrative in Genesis progresses, you can feel the anxiety about this issue beginning to build in Abraham and Sarah. The Lord comes to Abram again in Genesis chapter 15 and says, Abram, you know, this happens all throughout Genesis. There's a reiteration and expansion of the promises. And the Lord comes to Abram again in Genesis 15 and says to him, hey, don't be afraid, Abram. Uh, I'm your shield and your very great reward. And all this land that you see in front of you, I'm giving it to you. And if look up, he says actually in Genesis 15, he says, why don't you look up at the night sky and count the stars? If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham, the scripture says, believe the Lord. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And then also, <laughs> right after believing God, Abram goes, now, can we have a conversation about that, Lord? Because I know what you've said. You look up at the sky and count the stars and so shall your offspring be. But like, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm not getting any younger and she's not getting any less barren. And so at this point, God, the guy who's gonna inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Now we don't know anything about Eliezer of Damascus other than that the only time he gets mentioned in the Bible, he gets dissed by Abraham. It's a terrible thing. Abraham, Eliezer of Damascus. We go, yeah, Eliezer, he's terrible. But God actually says to him, no, 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 listen, Abram, it's not this man, but it's actually a son coming from your own body that's going to be your heir. Abraham and Sarah, it seems, really cling to that promise. So by the time we get to one chapter later, Genesis chapter 16, now the anxiety has like reached a critical mass between the two of them. And Sarah and Abraham together, they go, you know, one of the ways that we could build up the family line is that, Abraham, we could have you sleep with our Egyptian servant girl, Hagar. Great idea, guys. <laughs> 
Like this is, this is definitely going to go well, you know? And Abraham, to his great discredit, and Abraham does many wonderful things in the scripture, and it's, it's, it's for very good reason he's the father of our faith. But when Sarah suggests this to Abraham, you know, like, again, to his great discredit, do you know what he does? He doesn't offer, like, there's no objection to it. He goes, okay, well, it seems like a good idea. He, like, goes right along with it. So he does. He sleeps with this poor girl, Hagar. And she gets pregnant. And now, big surprise, Hagar and Sarah are beginning to squabble with one another. There's some jealousy that starts to creep in there. And it's creating this whole huge mess for Abram's family. And so the Lord comes back to him again in Genesis 17, continues to reassert the promise for him. God, uh, Abraham, I have big plans for you. I've got a future for you. I've got a hope for you. Your family is going to be the ones that carry the blessing. And in Genesis chapter 17, he gives him the covenant of circumcision and says, this is a mark in your flesh that I've made promises to you that I intend to keep. And so we come to this moment, Genesis chapter 17 and verse 15, because this is a turning point moment in the story that has very direct bearing on what Paul is saying to us in Galatians chapter 4. The scripture says, Genesis 17, verse 15, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, you will name her Sarah, and I will bless her, and I will surely give you a son by her. And I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, and kings of peoples will actually come from her. And Abraham fell face down, and he laughed, and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael, Ishmael is the son that was born to Hagar, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I'm going to bless him too. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He'll be the father of 12 rulers and I'll make him into a great nation. But my covenant, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. Now there's a question that we need to ask here. And it has direct bearing on this text that we're wrestling with in Galatians. Why is it that the Lord chooses to establish the covenant with Isaac and not with Ishmael? And the answer, Paul actually alludes to it in the text. The answer is that Isaac is the son of the free woman, whereas Ishmael is the son of the slave woman. And this has everything to do with the kind of promise that is embedded in the covenant, that what God wants to do with his people is turn them into a free people. And so he won't establish the covenant with the slave woman and her son. He must do it with the free woman and her son. And it's this very detail in the story of Abraham that Paul seizes to turn the tables uh, on his opponents. Look back down at verse 24, chapter 4, Galatians. Paul writes that these two things are actually being taken figuratively. These women here represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. And this is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery there with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is what? Free. And she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. You who are never in labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, it's a little bit complicated to try to follow here, but here's the point that I want you to grasp. When Paul looks at what his opponents are saying, Paul's opponents are basically saying, if you want to be the true family of God, you either have to be of a direct descendant from Abraham in some way, 
and or you have to have the mark of circumcision in your flesh. And what Paul does is he says, if that was true, then Ishmael would have counted, right? Because Ishmael also was a descendant of Abraham. And as we learn in Genesis 17, he also had the mark of circumcision in his flesh. But Paul goes, that's actually not enough to qualify us as the people of God. It's not just who's your daddy, okay? And it's not just do you abide by all the right things and do all the right stuff. There's something deeper at work that what God is interested in is not just making us ethnically of a certain type or just he's not just interested in making us have kind of a mark in our flesh. But what God wants to do is he wants to free us, which is why the covenant was established through the free woman. So I'd say it this way, that whereas Paul's opponents would have claimed that the true children of God are either born of Abraham and or circumcised, Paul says that the true children of God are those who are born of the freedom of the spirit. Who's in the family of God, brothers and sisters? Anyone who has been touched by the spirit of God in such a way that their lives have become free. Those are the people who are in the family of God. It's not just a matter of your ethnicity. It's not a matter of your descent. It's not a matter of your class. It's not a matter of where you were born or who you were born to or how much money you have or any of those old social distinctions. That's not the stuff. Nor is it a matter of mere religious observance. Do you happen to do all the right things? There's a more fundamental matter at play. And that fundamental matter is, have we had an encounter with the living God in such a way that that encounter has liberated us from all of the things that held us captive? That, for Paul, is what the Abraham and Sarah story was actually pointing to that the children of God will be the free children of God, which is, by the way, why God cannot tolerate what happens to his people in Exodus. When they become slaves in Egypt, what does God do? He breaks the right arm of Pharaoh and he liberates his people out because our God is a God of freedom. Can I get an amen from somebody? Jesus seizes on this very thing in John chapter 8 in his dispute with the Pharisees. To the Jews who had believed in him, the scripture says, if you hold to my teaching, Jesus says, you are really my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Well, they answered him, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we will be set free? See, they go, look, we know who our dad is. Our dad is Abraham. And we've never really been slaves, but Jesus locates the matter of slavery in a different place than just outward forms. For Jesus, it's a matter of the soul. It's a matter of the spirit. Very truly, Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Guys, this, this, but this is the gospel. (laughs) The gospel is the gospel of spiritual freedom. That when we come into an encounter with the living God, what it does is it liberates our lives. It wakes us up to the reality of God and the reality of other people. It wakes us up to the reality of the world. It sets our feet dancing and our lips, our tongue rejoicing. That's what it does to us, which is why Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, Paul says, with unveiled faces, reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Think about it. 
that when we come into an encounter with the Spirit of God, the Spirit liberates our lives and also begins a process of transforming us so that we become like that free man, Jesus the Lord. That's what the Lord is doing. And so I got a simple point for you this morning, and it's just this, that the true mark of the children of God is spiritual freedom. That's what it's all about. And do you remember? Do you remember when you first came into an encounter with the Spirit of the living God? When you first began to wake up to the reality of God, do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember what it did to you? Do you remember that? But I remember it for me. I was born and raised in the church, grew up in a Christian household. I've had lots of, in my young years, I had lots of little encounters with the Lord. And I would say, you know, some people talk about like, if you can't mark your spiritual birthday on the calendar, maybe it never really happened to you, you know? And I'm like, I, I cannot remember a day when I didn't love Jesus and trust Jesus with all of my heart. That's my life. But I've had encounters along the way that have greatly opened my eyes to the reality of Jesus. And I remember one of them came when I was 16 years old. I was kneeling by my bedside. I'm in the middle of high school. I've got all of these questions and doubts and confusions. I can't figure it out from down, right from left. Where am I? Who am I? Who is God? You know? And I remember kneeling by my bed one morning and I'm reading through 1 Corinthians and I get to the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure you know it well. Paul says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And I knew that text. I'd read it so many times in my life. And I'd had at that time in my life, I had lots of questions about God. Who is God? What is he like? You know? And for the first time in my life, I had an epiphany about that text. And I remembered in that moment, I remembered how one of Jesus' best friends, John, says it as simply and as beautifully as you can say it. John says that God is love. So the reason that Paul can say these words to the Corinthian believers about love is because these things were true about who first? God. So that when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that's actually a description of the living God. Who is our God? God is patient. God is kind. He does not envy. He doesn't boast. He's not proud. He's not rude. Our God is not rude. And our God is not self-seeking. And he is not easily angered. And he keeps no, he doesn't do it. God does not delight in evil. But God rejoices with the truth God always protects. God always trusts. God always hopes. God always perseveres. And as it turns out, God never fails. That's our God. God is like the primal force of love that's washing over the world and healing all things. And one of those moments, 16 years old, tilted my world. And I remember it awakened me in a way that I cannot hardly describe due to the reality of God. I remember leaving my bedroom that morning and it was like, you know how we talk about John chapter three. Jesus says that unless you're born again, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. You know, and in the 20th century, in the 21st century, we've made that more of a sociological description almost than anything else. You know, like, are you born again? Oh, you're one of them born agains. I've heard people talk about that. Oh, you're one of those born agains. 
aren't you? Which is really just a way of saying that you ascribe to a certain set of beliefs and you tend to be kind of mad at this group of people and that group of people and that group. And that's what it means to be born again. And so we've so Christianified that word that we've that term that we've forgotten what it means. But to be born again is a miraculous thing. To be born again is to have the spirit of God wash over you in such a way, and you've had it, I know you've had it, that experience, if you walk out into the world and the world is reborn for you, you see everything with different eyes. You see everything in a different way. Everything looks different for you. It changes your whole way of approaching everything. And I remember leaving my bedroom that morning at 16 years old. And every prayer meeting I went into, I had a different kind of energy about me. And every worship gathering, I just, God was everywhere, everywhere in my life. It was this God-saturated existence. And I loved, by the way, coming into the house of God for worship. Because every time from that point forward, I came to the house of God for worship, it was like I was stepping again into that being born againness, that sphere of spiritual freedom. And I remember just beginning to lift my hands and fall down on my face and tears flowing from my eyes. Why? Because I'm fulfilling some religious obligation? No. But because there was an encounter with the Spirit of God that opened me up to all God is. That's what happens. When we come into an encounter with the Spirit of God, that's why you're here this morning, <laughs> right? I think a lot of people in the, in the world, maybe, I don't know, they have some idea of Christians that the reason Christians gather on Sunday mornings is because their God is a little bit moody and insecure and temperamental. And so it's very important that if we want to maintain a good association with that God, that we gather together on Sunday mornings and we make sure to tell God how great he is. God, you're so amazing and you're so good. And if we, because he's just, he's again, he's like, he's a little junior high-ish, you know. And if we tell God like how good and amazing he is, that kind of like God settles down a little bit and we get God off of our back for another week until he starts getting insecure again. And then we come, but that's not why we gather. God doesn't need us to tell him how great he is. (laughs) We gather here because we need to enter into the sphere of God's greatness And so when we take God's name on our lips and when we ascribe to him glory and power, we're doing that for us. And as we gather, it makes us free. That's what happens when we're in this house for worship is that we're renewing our freedom. But it's not just, by the way, it's not just in worship that we give expression to and experience spiritual freedom. But we give expression to and experience spiritual freedom in our relationships with one another. Have you noticed that? Do you remember that first time that you had an encounter with Jesus? It changed the way that you thought about people, didn't you? Didn't it? Gave you this new compassion for them, love for them, desire to connect with them. You wanted to share your faith with others. You wanted to bond your life together with God's people. And every time we come into an experience of the living God, it does that. And it has this way. One of the Desert Fathers said that prayer is the seed of gentleness in the absence of anger. That when we come into an experience of God in prayer, it softens us. It molds us. And all of a sudden, we start looking at other people, not as threats, not as people that are encroaching upon our space, not as folks that we're in competition with, but we look at one another as precious members of the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I don't know if you realize this, but the tenderness that we experience in the house of God for one another is altogether unique on planet Earth. Do you know that? Like, do you know that like when people go, are the Broncos playing today? Are they doing a thing? I don't know. I'm from Wisconsin, so I'm not paying that much attention to the Broncos, but they are okay. So like people at the Broncos game, you know, like, or any football game anywhere, 
Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm getting my <laughs> illustration back on track here. Any football game anywhere, you know? You're sitting next to somebody, an anonymous human being who happens to be cheering for the same football team as you. When the football team scores a touchdown, you get all excited, and you might even high-five the stranger next to you. But here's the thing that you are not doing. You are not chasing down that person that you were sitting next to in the parking lot going, hey, man, can we exchange phone numbers? If your marriage ever gets in trouble, you let me know. <laughs> That's not happening. There's really one place on planet Earth where it's really happening. It's here. The Spirit is liberating us from selfishness and isolation. He's allowing our lives to become integrated with one another. I remember talking to an atheist guy. He came to a service that I was leading in Denver years ago. I was a church planter in Denver from 2009 to 2017. And this guy, he comes up to me after the service, and he goes, uh, he goes hey, I've been coming to your church for about a month now. And uh, he goes, I want to let you know, I don't believe any of the stuff that you guys believe. It's so like the whole Jesus thing doesn't make sense to me. The Trinity, that doesn't make sense to me. And then whatever y'all are doing at the table of the Lord, you know, that thing, eat the bread and the wine and body and blood, and then you eat it, that's creepy to me. Like, I'm not into any of that. He goes, I'm an atheist, you know, and I kind of float in more like science-y type circles generally, but somebody invited me to this, and I really like it. And he said, you know, last week, that thing that you did, the week before we had done a baptism, and it was this whole huge affair, as it is in the church. I love baptism. Baptism is like one of those moments in the church when the church is very much the church. Praying prayers and anointing people with oil and dunking them in the water and hugging each other and a crazy celebration. And he had been to the baptism service the week before. And he said, you know that thing that you guys did the week before? He said, you know, in, in kind of like the atheist and like science, like discussion circles that I roll in, he goes, we just don't really ever do anything like that. But you know what he was keying in on was the love that was in the house, the generosity, the grace, the sense of connection, the sense of like us. We're together. We're in this. God is for us. Who can be against us? Guys, that happens in the church. The church is that place on planet earth where the spirit of the sovereign Lord is among us to liberate us from isolation and selfishness and fear and to make us a people who genuinely share life in one another in such a way that the world looks at what the church is doing and the world goes, see how they loved one another. As we're living in this time that's full of so much division and discord and hatred and polarization and in the church, on the other hand, there is a group of people who by the spirit of God are experiencing what it means to be a place where there is no longer either Jew or Gentile, male or, slave, male or female, slave or free, but all of us are one in Christ Jesus. That's happening. The church is the place where we experience that and the spirit of the sovereign Lord is the one who does that. Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. But I gotta tell you that when I was studying this text, and I love this, I love this message on spiritual freedom and this emphasis on spiritual freedom. But maybe you've been experiencing, as I've been preaching this morning, maybe you've been experiencing the very tension that I felt when I was wrestling with this text. And the tension is this. Paul is making these unequivocal statements that we are spiritually set free. We are not the children of the slave woman, Paul says, but we are the children of the, the free woman. He's called this into the sphere of spiritual freedom. And yet the tension that I feel in my heart is I go, okay, Paul, can I, we, time out. Can we just yell a flag? I feel like you've committed a penalty here. <laughs> How is it like, why doesn't that square with our experience? 
Like, why is it, okay, so you say that we are spiritually free, but why is it that I don't feel spiritually free all the time? Why is it that I still have this area over here that feels bound up? Why is it that I still am tripping over this thing that I've been tripping over for 30 years? Why is that? Why is it that I still have this habit over here that I can't quite get over? Like, why is it I, I, I certainly have, like, tasted some of this freedom, but I got all of these areas where it feels like the freedom hasn't quite touched yet. Like, what gives with that? And do you know what I would love? I would love it if, I, if you could search the New Testament and find some statements that kind of confirmed that feeling. You know what I mean? Statements that said something to the effect of, okay, hey, when you come into an experience of Jesus the Lord, it sets you free like a little bit, right? And then the rest of your life, what you do is you kind of get free sort of the rest of the way, right? I would love that. I would love it if the New Testament somewhere said, the experience of the Spirit of God is the experience of beginning to be free, right? And then at the end of all things, when Jesus comes back, then we'll experience the fullness of that freedom. But along the way, you're going to have some stuff that you're still really hung up by. I would love that, wouldn't you? And yet, what you get in the New Testament is not any such statements. What you get in the New Testament, all of the statements that I can find, all of the statements dealing with spiritual freedom in the New Testament are all in the present tense and not in the future tense. Paul says here in Galatians, you are not, you are not the children of the slave woman, but you are the children of the free woman. When? Sometime in the future? When? Right now, present tense. Jesus, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When? Sometime in the future? No, right at that moment that Jesus, the Son of God, frees you, you are free indeed. Paul, again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. When? In the future? Right now. It's right now. It's right now. So what do we do with that tension that we feel about not feeling free? I heard a story that I think, I think, illustrates beautifully our situation. April 1945, the Allies are coming. The German Reich is beginning to fall. And on the eastern side of the German Empire, so this is during World War II, eastern side of the German Empire, there was a notorious concentration camp by the name of Buchenwald, the Buchenwald Concentration Camp. And as the German Reich is beginning to fall, the whole cause seems hopeless and lost. The German soldiers who ran that concentration camp began realizing that their cause was desperate and hopeless. They began uh, taking prisoners out and executing them ahead of time so that when the Allies got there, at the very least, they would have fulfilled their role and responsibility, executing all of the Jews that were in the concentration camp there. And so a number of the Jewish prisoners that were in that concentration camp, realizing what was happening, that like, oh my gosh, like our cause now is actually very dire. Uh, several of them had taken some pieces, some little pieces of junk, and they had actually assembled uh, a transistor radio that was able to do Morse code. And so they went and found their little radio and they went to a back room and they hooked it up and they sent out an SOS. We are in trouble. They're beginning like a mass extermination of all of us right now. Please help. Now, by the way, they don't know that the allies are coming. They have no concept of that. So it's like this last ditch effort. If anybody out there is listening to us, please come and help us do anything for us. So the SOS goes out and within a very short amount of time, you know what happened? They got a response from the allies saying, hold on, help is on the way. 
which is an amazing moment in the story, if you ask me. <laughs> Hold on, help is on the way. If that's not a picture of the gospel, I don't know what is, right? But that is the story of our God with us. Hold on, the help is on the way. I'm coming for you. But here's the most amazing part of the story. You know what those prisoners did? Emboldened by that message from the outside, the help was on the way, they seized the weapons from the German guards and overthrew the concentration camp. So that when the allies actually arrived, April 11th, 1945, do you know what they discovered? Not masses of dead bodies heaped up. They discovered the German soldiers under guard and the Jewish prisoners standing at the gates with the gates flung wide open. Do you know what kills me about that story? Why did they take so long? Yeah. Sometimes all you need is just somebody saying to you, hold on, help is on the way. And what it does is it awakens your agency in you. It awakens your strength in you. It awakens your freedom to choose in you. And those Jewish prisoners decided their choice was that they were going to do everything they could to overthrow the camp and get their freedom back so that when freedom, when their liberators met them, freedom met freedom at the front gates of that concentration camp. That, guys, is our situation. I know that you feel that you are bound. I know that you feel that you are stuck. I know that you feel that you are unfree. But what I'm saying to you is that in the gospel, God says to you two things. Number one, hold on, help is on the way. But also number two, the son has set you free. So the question is, what are you gonna do about it? And I know, I, and I don't know what your thing is, but I know that as I've been preaching this morning, you've been thinking about that thing. We've got all these areas where we feel free and it's so amazing. And we have those areas where every waking moment of our lives, every waking moment, we think about that thing. Boy, I just wish it could be different. Boy, I wish I could be over that addiction. That habit that I have, that just keeps biting me in the butt. That thing that just holds me back all the time. Or some relationship that just feels hopelessly stuck. And you go, it's just never gonna get better than this, but I wish it would. I am telling you that if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. There is something left for you to do. And one of the things that we do, and with this, we begin to turn our hearts to the table of the Lord, is that one of the things that we do when we come to the house of God for worship is we're not just sort of celebrating all of the places where we feel amazing, but we're also claiming that what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord, that that broken body and shed blood of the Lord also matters for those places where we feel stuck. And so we renew our identity as the free people of God and we find new strength to do the next right thing. I don't know for you what the next right thing will be. Might be making the phone call to the person that you're just really stuck with. It might be that you need to get into counseling or therapy for that thing. You've just been too ashamed even to admit to yourself that you're stuck about the thing. For the love of all that's holy, go to counseling or therapy. It might be that you're stuck in some addiction that you have just tried to manage over here on the side, but now, now it's like getting the best of you. And it's time for you to come down, talk to one of the pastors here, just confess to somebody. There's, what I'm saying is there's something left for you to do. Do it. And do you know what's on the other side of that decision? 
the freedom that you already always had but just weren't taking advantage of. Are you with me this morning, friends? Can we stand to our feet? And I'm gonna invite you to come to the table of the Lord here. Actually, why don't you do it right now? Just exit your roll on the left side and come on up, get your communion elements and take them back to your seat. And as you're heading, as you're grabbing your communion elements and taking them back to your seat, what I want you to remember this morning is that this meal that we're about to receive together, this is a Passover meal. Do you remember that? And you know what that means? Jesus, when he instituted this meal, he did it at Passover. Passover was the the annual celebration of the people of God, of how their God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And it was their God's pledge to them that so long as it depended on him, they would always be a free people. And Jesus chose that moment to define what his ministry was. He says, this bread and this cup, this is my body. This is my blood. And when you take this, you're gonna find new strength inside yourself to walk into the freedom that I've given you. So brothers and sisters, here we are. Here we are. This body, its brokenness liberates us. This blood shed for us, frees us, frees us from every slavery to sin. And so we come, Lord Jesus. And we remember that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it. Can we break it together? And you said, take this, all of you, and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this whenever you take it in remembrance of me. Can we take the body together? The bread of freedom. This is the bread of freedom, brothers and sisters. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Your life poured out for us, Lord Jesus, makes us alive. So we pray, come. Let your life saturate us to the innermost. Let it renew all the dead places in us. Free us, we pray, at the table. Let's take the cup together, friends. And can we now begin to give God thanks for what he is doing among us, what he has done among us, and what he will do for us. We say thank you, O God. Our Heavenly Father, we say thank you. Christ Jesus, Son of the living God, we give you glory and thanks and honor and praise. For by your hand, you have redeemed for yourself a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation and language, and you have made us a kingdom and priests to serve our God. We are no longer slaves, but we are the liberated sons and daughters of the living God. So we pray this morning that your spirit would fall on us afresh. Would you cry out this morning for the spirit of God to fall on you afresh? Fall on us, we pray. Wake us up to all that you have provided for us. Give us courage and strength to step into the lives that you have given to us. Help us live them in a way that brings benefit to the world, glory unto your name, and joy to our hearts. Grant it, we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above.
would you lift up your hands like this in a posture of reception, receptivity. And I pray over you this morning, New Life Mint Town. I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May you step out of these doors today as the liberated sons and daughters of the living God that you already are in Christ Jesus. Go in God's grace and mercy and peace.